2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday called Russia's ongoing assault on Ukrainian cities barbaric. That's a day after the U.S. announced a new round of aid to rebuild Ukraine's decimated energy infrastructure, which has left civilians without light and heat as frigid temperatures set in throughout the country. We'll talk about what the U.S. is doing to help, and the human toll of Russia's war, with Guardian foreign correspondent Luke Harding, who's been reporting from inside Ukraine since the war began. He joins us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Guardian foreign correspondent Luke Harding has been reporting from inside Ukraine since last December and was in Kiev on February 24th when Russian bombs started falling. He's written what he calls a first draft of history of Russia's ongoing nine-month-long assault on Ukraine and about the massive human toll it's taken. His new book is Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. And he joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Luke Harding. Uh,
3: Welcome, welcome, Mina. Thank you. Great to be with you.
2: Really glad to have you on. I want to start, actually, though, with what's happening right now for millions of Ukrainians. I looked at the weather today, and it's in the 20s Fahrenheit in Kyiv, like negative one to four Celsius. But civilians are without heat, electricity, sometimes running water, or are constantly on the verge of losing those things because of Russian attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Can you tell us more about the scope of what's happening?
3: Yes. Uh, I mean, it's it's a grim winter already um, across Ukraine in, in the capital, Kiev, and, and other cities. I mean, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it's dark. Um, every so often, the, the Russians whack electricity substations with cruise missiles, uh, which is you know, it's 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 a it's an obvious uh, attempt to to destroy heat, power, light for for millions of people, and to force the Ukrainians to capitulate. And and the reality is that when there is electricity, you, you rush to the to the plug and you charge your phone as quickly as you can. Uh, you know, I bought head torches, power banks. You spend a lot of time in the dark. Um, but d- despite this. Despite despite all that, I, I think that Ukrainians are still um, pretty robust, they're adaptable, and they are determined to um, survive this winter and to keep going forward.
2: Yeah, they are finding ways to cope. We are hearing about some of those ways besides getting power supplies, you know, musicians doing concerts by candlelight to try to warm people's souls essentially as well. But it is so hard. Hospitals are losing power in the middle of surgeries with limited... Backup generator capacity and so on. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfield, said last week that she sees Putin as, quote, weaponizing winter to inflict immense suffering on the Ukrainian people and that he's trying to freeze the country into submission. Do you think that's an accurate assessment that that this deliberate cruelty on civilians is part of the plan?
3: I think it's absolutely part of the plan and also we we've seen it from the very um first days of the invasion uh mina we we, we've seen i mean i've chronicled it in my book i've been to the places that russia has occupied including satellite towns like Bucha in the kiev region just north of the capital to to the kharkiv region in the far northeast up, up by the russian border and most recently in the south around Kherson. and Yes, there's a war going on. Yes, soldiers are dying on both sides. But but what Russia has been doing or Russian armed forces have been doing venomously and relentlessly is targeting the civilian population as well. It's been a a light motif of this terrible war. We've seen um, murders. We've seen abductions. We've seen tortures. We've seen executions, mostly of men, but sometimes of women. We've seen rape. We've seen upward of 400 plus children killed. So, So this latest... Uh, tactic, if you can call it that, by, by Moscow is no surprise. And I think what, what what's happening is that the, the Russians have been very frustrated on the battlefield. They've been going backwards. And so they've decided to revenge themselves on a, on a hapless civilian population.
2: So you do agree with the idea that Russia is launching these infrastructure attacks in part to compensate for its combat losses?
3: Yes, and because it can, because it can. I mean, the the, the Russians um, still have, des- despite the fact this war has been getting at a furious tempo for a long time, they still have reserves of cruise missiles, they, they still have artillery, and, and they can actually target pretty ruthlessly um, Ukrainian infrastructure. Now now the Ukrainians keep on saying the government of Volodymyr Zelensky, you know, give us better air defences, and they are shooting down quite a lot of these. But, yes. but I've been in uh where where and you hear explosions in the distance and you try and figure out what what they've hit and whether you need to take shelter
2: Secretary of State Antony Blinken called Russia's brutalization of of the energy infrastructure barbaric and said that the US has to continue to supply Ukraine with these weapons that are shooting down the missiles and so on and also announced new aid and equipment to repair the country's damaged power grid. What does this say or affirm for you about the U.S.'s posture in this role, in this in this war? The role that we're assuming.
3: Well, I, I mean, I think I think the U.S. I mean, certainly viewed from from Ukraine, Ukrainians I talk to, I mean, they are very grateful. They're profoundly grateful for U.S. support, um, upward of about twenty billion dollars by now, military support first and foremost, but, but also political support, economic support, infrastructural support and, and moral support too. And um, look, the Ukraine has got a lot of friends, but but the, the US contribution um, is probably 20 times greater than, than the next country, which is where I am, the UK. I'm, I'm talking to you from London. Um, and I think it's made a decisive impact. I think actually, without US assistance, uh, Ukraine would have would have struggled to to hold back the russian advance i mean possibly I mean, certainly what they would not have been able to do is what we've seen since late summer which is that they've been actually to, able to, to retake territory to deoccupy their land uh after russian forces swept in, in 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 late february and early march so it's been absolutely crucial and i think you, w- what i pick up from from talking to the, go- the zelensky government is you know privately a fear that at some point Uh, The the West, the US in particular, but other countries may wobble and start reducing aid. Um, Mm -hmm. But for now, it's absolutely essential.
2: Well, some Republican members of Congress here have questioned very strongly whether or not these expenses, the billions of dollars in, in missiles, the millions of dollars in aid and equipment to repair Ukraine's power grid is is justified. And of course the Republican Party will take control of the House in January. Uh, I was struck by something you said in your book, Luke, that in light of the US's successes. So for example, in predicting the invasion, its handling of intelligence, Biden's leadership, um, you say also basically restored uh, US's the US's preeminence in the international Arena with regard to how he's handled Ukraine, that he's gotten little credit for it here. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, look, I, I may be wrong. Uh, I mean, the book is written from uh, Kiev and from from the front line uh, first and foremost. But but as you as you yourself sort of mentioned, I, I'm kind of surprised surprised that some on the Republican Party are suggesting that it's not in, in the U.S. interests to to keep going. I mean, certainly. In Europe, I think it's almost completely, you know, a bipartisan issue. I mean, certainly in the UK, you still see politicians of all political stripes wearing UK and Ukraine flags. Um, And, you know, in Europe itself, the Baltic states, Central Europe, the Poles, that that they are all politicians behind this effort. Um, I mean, I, I, I just... You know, I'm just thinking of a tweet recently from Donald Trump. You'll, you'll remember that, that there was a, an enormous kind of Russian missile strike. and One of the Ukrainian anti-air, uh, anti-aircraft anti sort of missiles landed in Poland. And Trump was basically saying, you, you know, Ukraine is, is hitting Poland and NATO ally. What, why do we supply them with arms? Uh, to which the answer is basically what i seen by Kiev, that, that if, if Kiev goes down, if Ukraine is rolled over by Russia then then actually the Russians will continue because what Putin essentially wants is a sphere of influence similar to to the one Moscow enjoyed in Soviet times which means control over over much of central europe the baltic states certainly moldova uh you know poland and so on so so it's in it, it's in really in everyone's interest that the us keeps this up
2: yes and how significant was our early intervention here you you point to the way that Nations responded um, you know people Sweden Finland abandoning neutrality and, and so on
3: um, well I mean I, I think it was I mean what what, what interests me I think what, what one aspect of this war that has not yet been fully told is the kind of the use of intelligence because obviously we, we know about the the public stuff we know about the, these long-range high artillery systems which um, the Pentagon you know the US has been supplying which on the battlefield, where I visited have been a, a game changer. What we know less about is the sort of secret intelligence, the use of satellite data, uh, geolocation data um, collected presumably by the US and its allies and, and sent to Kiev. But but certainly, you know, and I was in Kiev in January and February, and it was very very striking how emphatically uh, the Biden administration was saying that Putin was was going to invade at a time when, first of all. Um, the Russians were denying it. And secondly, the Ukrainians didn't want to believe it. I mean, it was just such a horror story, the idea that there'll be a full-scale invasion of their country. And and yet the intelligence was right. And I think that the decision to sort of pre-brief, I mean, there's a a wonderful phrase called pre-buttle, took the sting out of some of the Russian disinformation. Uh, And actually when the invasion did come, um, made the US very credible indeed.
2: Yes. And and then you go on to write by showing solidarity with Ukraine, the United States and its allies found a role, a new moral purpose and a collective resilience. Do you want to say a little bit more about that?
3: Well, I mean, that's one of the great paradoxes of this of this um, of this war. I mean, Vladimir Putin basically has been doing egregious deeds, bad stuff for for two decades. And, And typically the response has been rather rather weak uh that's what he was counting on this time you know for example when he annexed Crimea you know Ukraine, ukrainian peninsula in 2014 and, and kick-started a war in the east of the country which has grown into this sort of super war that there wasn't much from from the Obama administration i mean there were some sanctions and and uh, you know of course there was a response but I, I think he thought this time there would not be a response and he's been taken aback by what's happened and and briefly as i say that there's there's definitely a, a kind of resurgent role for, for for the us in 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 leading uh, on on ukraine and also nato the transatlantic alliance has been absolutely restored i mean emmanuel macron the french president a few years ago described nato as brain dead and now we have the Finns, weeds queuing up to join a- and nato has a purpose and that purpose is to contain russia this this imperialist aggressive hyperactive state that that really has plunged europe into the into the biggest war biggest conflict for 80 years.
2: Well, let me ask our listeners what they think of how the US has handled and is handling the war. Should we do more? too much we're doing too much what do you think you can email forum at kqed.org you can post your thoughts on facebook twitter or instagram at kqed forum and you can always call us 866-733-6786 866-733-6786 we're talking with luke harding foreign correspondent for the guardian his new book is invasion the inside story of russia's bloody war and ukraine's fight for survival stay with us Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow, your favorite podcast from 2022, the one where you got notified the moment a new episode dropped, or the one you play when you can't sleep. We want to know your favorite podcast from this year and why. You can tell us in a voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking with Guardian foreign correspondent Luke Harding about Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. And we'll learn more now about the devastating toll it's taken. Luke, before the break, you were talking about the things that you have witnessed with regard to just some of the horrors. Um, Before we do that, I do want to ask you about that night, or the night before the war began, before the invasion began. You were in Ukraine that night as well as in the weeks and days before and even with all the warnings and your own premonitions you say there was still this feeling that surely putin was bluffing you went to a big lovely dinner the night before the attack that made war seem unreal why
3: um well be, because actually kiev was was normal i mean to be clear kiev is it's a great modern european city it's not a faraway place it's somewhere where you can order artisanal pizza or use your app to get a car or go and dance in a late-night sort of basement club. Or, you, you know, where, the night of the invasion, I, I walked out of my hotel past a, a woman violinist who was busking, playing Edith Piaf numbers and and past, past ladies selling tulips out of plastic buckets. And I had dinner with um, Andrei Kukov, who's, who's a famous Ukrainian novelist, uh, a, a, a wonderful, uh, brilliant... Uh, a sort of bear-like man with, 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 with a beard and he he was serving uh, serving a few of us borscht which is ukraine's national dish this sort of delicious soup and i was very very pessimistic he, he was quite optimistic i think basically by 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 temperament couldn't quite believe it and the the, the point is you know, that the restaurants were full there were couples out and about you know i'd seen a seen a uh, seen a, you know, a lot of people on the streets dog walkers and so on Um, And we had this wonderful dinner where I was saying, look, I really think he's going to do it. Uh, And I walked out and and looked up and there was a sort of dark velvet sky. And I took a call from a contact of mine who'd worked in the Ukrainian foreign ministry who just said, it's happening at 4 a.m. The invasion is happening at 4 (laughs) a.m. And it was it was just one of those moments where you feel, you know, history converge. And and it was it was a Wednesday night. And I went back to the hotel. And of course, you can't sleep. Uh, and at four o'clock, I had a call from a colleague saying, "Well, four thirty, saying it started." So I threw on my boots and my coat, and we we descended to the the basement, which became a bomb shelter. And the moment it hit me that this was not just about geopolitics or or about you know international relations was about six a.m. when a when a mother, a mum, walked in with two small kids who she yanked from their beds, perched them, she sat them down on adult chairs, and they started filling in these coloring books. And I just thought that this is horror. I mean, there was a Russian tank column advancing at that moment across the international border towards Kiev. Um, there the was bombing. There the were helicopters in the air. Uh, there was a sense of fear and dread. And I, I knew that the, the the main victims of this this terrible conflict were going to be civilians, men, women, and children. And and that's absolutely what's happened.
2: Yes, your book really does bring the horror of this multi-pronged assault to life could you first talk about what you learned in bucha about what happened in bucha
3: well i mean i mean bucha is tough to to talk about but but just to explain it's a wonderful green garden suburb where where sort of people who were a little tired of city life would move out um 30 kilometers with their kids because the air was better there are all these cottages with picket fences and vegetable gardens and uh, you, uh and when the russians swept in kind of christmas decorations but but basically this tank column got stuck uh in in Bucha, european gostomol the sort of cities around there and there was a there was a, a massive ukrainian counterattack, which the russians had not been expected with many russian armored personnel carriers destroyed and so what what the what, what the russian soldiers did was was basically take it out on the civilian population and so I, I, I mean, they were there for about four weeks. They they left chaotically at the end of March of this year. And I went a few days later and you probably would have seen some of the uh, photos of bodies uh, on the streets with their hands tied. And I, I just mm-hmm. talked to one woman called Tanya whose 26 year old nephew had been uh, arrested by the Russians that they, they checked his phone. They found a photo that he'd taken of a destroyed Russian tank. And they just said, you're coming with us, marched him down the road in his flip flops, cold March day. Uh, and when Tanya peered over the fence a couple of hours later, she saw her beloved nephew. They'd broken his arm. He was covered in blood. He was sobbing, saying he didn't know anything. Um, and they later sort of stuffed him, uh, stuffed him in, a, in, a, in a vehicle and, and drove off with him and told his mother that he would be brought back. She didn't hear anything for, th- didn't hear anything for three weeks. And then when they left, uh, a neighbor came around the same day and said, we found a body. Um, and she showed me to the site where, where, of course, it was her nephew. So we, we went down this, this road past a destroyed Russian checkpoint into a cottage with, with daffodils on the lawn and, and a well and a, you know, a place for the dog and descended into this gloomy cellar where there was a bloody mattress and a kid's toy, a cuddly toy. And they would kept him there for about four or five nights. And um, um, w- one evening they'd come down, they'd made him kneel. He was called Volodya and they shot him in the head um and you know Tanya buried the body in the garden later, later he was later sort of probably assumed but the, the the point Mina, is there were 1600 cases like that in the Kiev region there were 13 people on that street who were executed by the Russians mm. wherever they go you know places I've been in the northeast and the south bodies turn up it's it's unthinkable. It's like something from the darkest moment of the 20th century, except except it's happening now.
2: Yeah. Ukrainian authorities have also said there's evidence that women in Bucha were serially raped. You talk a little bit about this, What what do you know about this?
3: Well, it's it, look, it's it's a tricky story to do, um, but I mean, certainly the, the Ukrainian government says that in Bucha, there was a uh, the Russian soldiers kept a house with about 30 women in it some of the minors about nine of whom ended up pregnant um and he, he, there was were, a there were at least one woman in the New York Times who put it on this who who appeared appeared to be had been made as some sort of sex slave whom they executed and again together with the torture, um, the the intimidation the the murder rape is definitely being used by by Russia by Russian soldiers as a weapon in this war and and actually, You know, rape is being encouraged by by the Kremlin.
2: Well, the listener writes, why aren't these attacks on civilian infrastructure, talking about the civilian infrastructure being called war crimes, isn't attacking civilians exactly that? Um, As we listen to the civilian infrastructure attacks, also just hearing about the atrocities that you are describing, there is this question about war crimes and whether anybody will be brought to justice for these things.
3: Yes, it, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, by the time I sort of, I, I, I finished the book, uh, I, I read it pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, it, it, it it's out now that the, the U- Ukrainians had compiled a list of more than 10,000 crimes. They, they've they got their own prosecutors. Every time there's a bombing or a grad missile fall, uh, falls on a block of apartments, people come in, they, they log the injured, the dead, the damage, that there are international investigators who've been to places like Butcher, uh, lawyers. And what, what Volodymyr Zelensky says, the president, he says he, he wants three things. He wants the Russians to leave all Ukrainian territory. Uh, he wants reparations for, for, the, for the damage they've caused, which run into billions of dollars. Uh, and he wants justice and accountability. So he wants he wants a trial, a, you know, a Nuremberg style trial for Putin and his inner circle. Now, how much of this he gets, whether he gets some of it or all of it or, or none of it, it, it's too early to say. But but this this war is being documented. There is a there is a, a huge amount of evidence which is being collected now, and you would hope that at some point there can be can be a trial. Because I agree with your caller. I mean, th- these are war crimes, absolutely by by a rogue state.
2: We're talking about Russia's war on Ukraine, the devastating toll it's taken. With Luke Harding, for, foreign correspondent for the Guardian. His new book is Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 or by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, posting your comments online, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at kqedforum. On the line now, we have Lana in San Francisco. Hi, Lana. Uh,
5: Hi. Hi, Milan.
2: Thanks for, for joining us. I understand you're a Ukrainian refugee.
5: Is that right? Yes, that's right. And thank you for keeping uh, interest to in Ukraine with your discussion, with your, uh, all of, of these uh, guests. Thank you so much. So you came only a few
2: months ago. What, what made you decide to leave? Were you trying to stay?
5: Uh, uh, so I was uh, at pro uh, when the war started, and uh, we decided to leave with my sons with uh, 8 years old boy and uh, 11 years old boy, uh, just in two weeks when war started. Uh. We decided uh, to leave because it's, uh, it was terrible. It was uh, uh, hard to believe that it's happening right now. And, yeah, that's why we decided to leave the country.
2: Uh, do you have family still there?
5: Of course. Uh, my husband, he's still in Ukraine, in Dnipro. Um, my mother... My father and my brother, actually, a lot of my family is still in Ukraine. Mm-hmm.
2: How are they doing?
5: Uh, they are fine for right now, they are safe for right now, but nobody knows what will be in the next second, next day, or next week. They are fighting with uh, no electricity days, they are fighting with no heating days. Uh, so, yeah, it's hard, but yeah, it's nowadays, nowadays life.
2: What would you like people to know about what's happening in Ukraine, Lana?
5: About what's happening or about... Uh, okay, what's happening, I, I think it's better to ask people who live uh, live here right now. Or what um, would you like them, them to just, understand uh, about it, I mean? Um, I, I think that the main uh, thing that I want to give for everybody that... Uh, All Ukrainians uh, can uh, beat anything, but it's better to be without Russia. So, as you know, the the last uh, month's slogan that uh, no electricity, no heating, no connection, but it's better than be with Russia.
2: Uh, Lana, thank you. I really appreciate you calling in, and I really wish you and your family back in Ukraine safety um, and warmth. Luke, when you, so you are hearing Lana talk about <clears throat> how how it they will cope, they will deal with this for some time, because if it means a future without Russia, it is worth it. Is that a common sentiment that you hear?
3: Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting. Um, we haven't talked yet about Volodymyr Zelensky, the president. I mean, he, he's an incredible communicator. And one of his best speeches, most memorable speeches was when the Russians started bombarding uh, electricity um, substations. And he basically said if the choice is between power, heat, light, uh, or without you, meaning without Russia, then without you. And he kept on repeating without you, without you, without you. And th- the thing about Zelensky is he's a kind of amplifier of, of the Ukrainian popular mood. And when I was in southern Ukraine in in villages which uh, had just been liberated, they had nothing. I mean, they had no gas, they had no electricity, uh, that the Russians had left and had blown up their school nursery uh, radio tower. And yet they were jubilant because they were saying, look, they've taken us back 30 years, but we're free. And yeah, it's awful. It's dark. They're embattled. I mean, the war is exacting a terrible toll, but as Ukrainians see it, this is a fight to the end for their survival, and and the alternative, it, you know, if Ukraine goes down, is is subjugation and occupation, and and they will do everything they can to resist that.
2: Well, let me go to caller Bruce in Piedmont. Hi, Bruce, you're on.
6: Hi, thanks for taking the call. Uh, I have yeah two questions to ask uh, your guest. Um, first, um, uh, with regard to the the courage and the resilience of the Ukrainian people. Uh, Russia is fighting a war of attrition, and they have cheap drones to blow up expensive infrastructure. Um, and the, the defensive weapons that we have been sending them have been too few. And, um, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 cheap, the cheap drones are going to win the war of attrition at the end, Unless um, two things happen, um, we we allow we must allow uh, the Ukrainians to uh, attack the Russian supply lines, even though they're in Russia and the staging areas and the launching areas of those of those missiles and drones that are destroying the infrastructure. And I'd like to get your mm. guests' opinion about that. And one other thing, um, our one reason why we're Uh, providing not enough of the defensive weapons is because our own supplies are running low. And I wonder if your guest would speculate on whether China's support of Russia's war is um, uh, an attempt to reduce our stockpiles of weapons so that they would have an easier time of invading Taiwan if they decide to do that.
2: Bruce, thanks. Uh, Luke, can you take those two questions from Bruce?
3: Yeah, I can. I mean, I thought Bruce made very good points um, on on the weapons. I mean, the, 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 look, I've, I've spent time on the front line with the Ukrainian commanders. Uh, they're they, they're thrilled by these long-range HIMARS, but at the moment, the artillery that that the US is supplying allows them to to hit targets about eighty kilometers away. Now, now there's. There are other sort of pods of munitions that that the US could supply, which give them a 300-kilometer range. Uh, they want this. They haven't got. It, they haven't got it yet. But I sort of think after nine months of terrible war, basically not just the US, because there are other countries involved as well, should give the Ukrainians, you know, whatever they can they can spare, uh, particularly air defenses. I mean, Ukrainian air defenses are pretty good, but what the Russians are doing is so they're throwing 90 missiles at various targets of which 2025 get through. And I talked to the head of the the Ukrainian energy, state energy provider, and he he described the situation as Bruce was sketching as an unequal game. In other words, they can destroy quicker than the Ukrainians can rebuild. So uh, air defenses are very important in in terms of China. I I think it's a really interesting complicated relationship because in in theory, China and Russia are very close, close allies, but the the reality is this is not a relationship of equals. I mean, China is vastly more powerful than, 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 than Russia. And actually, we, so far we haven't seen big supplies of Chinese weapons to the Russians. So, you know, I, I'm not sure where we're at with that. I mean, Putin yeah. would definitely like more support from Beijing than he's getting.
2: Well, in terms of the long-range missiles and the fact that the U.S. won't supply them for attacks in Russia, the the justification is that the U.S. does not want to be seen as directly attacking the country and then pulling us into something that could really escalate.
3: We, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're way beyond that. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you can see that as a sort of analysis, you know, or a, or a, or a policy paper or a sort of, you know, State mm-hmm. Department position in the spring. We've got beyond that. I mean, after Bucha, after Mariupol, after tens of thousands of civilians being exterminated, um, you know, but the, the, uh, but basically, the other point is that Putin already thinks he's at war with America and, and with the West. I mean, the way it's being framed on on Russian state TV is is this is already World War Three. It's an existential struggle for Moscow, fighting against the Americans. And the the obsession with the idea that Ukraine is basically some kind of a American colony that that's how it's portrayed. Now it isn't, um, but uh, but I th- I think the time for nicety for for restraint is over.
2: We're talking with Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian. We're talking about Russia's war on Ukraine, the toll it's taken, how it began. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and thoughts about this stage of the war, if you are a refugee yourself or have friends or relatives in Ukraine. You can also tell us what you're hearing and, of course, you're giving us your thoughts on how the U.S. is handling it. You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786 or post on social media. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the latest on the war in Ukraine, and you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts as well. Let me go to Sharon in Sacramento. Hi, Sharon.
7: Good morning, uh, Nina, and and your guest. I applaud him for his reporting. It's very useful to those of us who need information. Um, I want to applaud the Ukrainians Um, They are very brave um, and courageous people who are fighting and willing to die for democracy. So it should not be a surprise that the Republicans do not want to support them. They are autocrats, the Republicans. Um, Um, They don't want democracy or support
2: it. Well, Sharon, you're very clear with how you feel. Thank you for sharing it. I appreciate the call. Uh, Let me go next to Tom in Santa Rosa. Hi, Tom.
6: Yes, hello. Thanks for taking my call. I have one question and then one comment. The question is, how is it that we allow Russia to hold a uh, seat on the Security Council in the United Nations when Putin and his cronies are are violating all the... uh, international laws and treaties uh, that we would expect anybody to abide by. And then my uh, comment is, uh, as I see it, the only resolution to this uh, invasion is for the faux commie administrative state in Russia to be dismantled, finally.
2: Well, Tom, thanks for the comment. Luke, the question about why Russia's still on the UN Security Council?
3: It's a good question, and and uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, has repeatedly called for for Russia to be kicked off. I mean, unfortunately, I don't see much prospect of that. But it, it, as someone who who watches Russian diplomacy, if you can call it that, quite quite closely, um, the 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 Kremlin basically has become uh, unhinged. What it says about the world, what it says about the war, bears no relation to reality. I mean, Putin has been talking about deed, Nazifying Ukraine, demilitarizing it. I mean, this is this is a state run by a Jewish president whose grandfather fought uh, against the German army in World War Two and whose relatives perished in the Holocaust. Um, So, yeah, uh, as far as dismantling Russia goes, it's tricky. I mean, what we have to acknowledge, unfortunately, is the majority of Russians support Vladimir Putin uh, still and the propaganda works.
2: Your book does try to give us some more insight into Putin's motivations for this war. At one point, you, you call it, in Putin's view, a, civil, a civilizational struggle, more akin to a medieval crusade. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, I mean, w- w- one aspect of this war which doesn't get much attention is the fact that it's certainly presented inside Russia as a religious war. Um, there's been uh, a split between the, the, uh, Ukrainian Orthodox church, which supports democracy and Ukraine's sovereignty and the traditional Russian Orthodox church headed by, um, a patriarch in Moscow, Kirill. Now, Kirill is, is a prominent supporter of Putin. He has blessed this war. And he's even said that Russian soldiers who die in battle will go straight to heaven with their sins absolved and and certainly if you want i mean i speak fluent russian if you if you watch russian state tv it's presented as a war between good and evil evil being america uh the decadent and permissive west in general as 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 the kremlin sees it uh and it there's a there's a sort of a, almost a kind of metaphysical element to it now this may seem to us crazy but this is how it's being this is how it's being presented to, to to Russians. It's a war of survival. Um, that's how they that they're, they're told about it, rather than what it really is, which is a war of choice.
2: And what do you know about why he did this now? The the timing of it, the the strategic urgency that Putin saw in this. Is it you speculated, or others have speculated? Is he ill? Is he in that stage in his life where it's now or never? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I think it's now or never. I mean, it's interesting. There was lo- there was a lot of uh, talk earlier this year that Putin might be terminally ill. I mean, he doesn't look too good. He spent, uh, he, he's, he's been the world's sort of foremost social isolator during the COVID period. He's seen almost no one. This is someone who was already isolated. But the reality is he's still alive or appears to be alive. Uh, and I don't think we can rely on him to, uh, to, to sort of die and, and vacate the stage. Um, I think he's been obsessed with History, he wrote an essay published on the Kremlin website in the summer of 2021 where he argued that Ukraine was never a country Um, It was a strange rambling Chauvinistic Document and I think he's thinking about he's got this sort of shimmering vision in front of him where he's comparing himself to Stalin to other Russian rulers like Peter the Great or Ivan the Terrible and he's thinking look, if I don't do this if I don't make Russia a great Empire again you know, my successor will not be equal to the task. And so I have to do it now.
2: Again, Luke Harding's first draft of history of this war is called Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. Luke Harding is a correspondent for The Guardian. Well, we're getting a couple of questions about Putin's exit strategy and and where How this ends, Michael tweets, what's Putin's exit strategy or will this be a forever war? Could he withdraw without sacrificing his presidency? Kirsten writes, I fully support U.S. and NATO military assistance to Ukraine. Does Luke have insight on possible paths out of the war? Kirsten also wants to say thank you and thanks to The Guardian for reporting on the war.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I mean... (laughs) Exit strategy is interesting. I mean, that what the Ukrainians want is pretty clear. They want the Russians to leave. They want reparations. They want accountability. Putin, despite all of these military setbacks, still appears uh, to think that Russia can win this war by grinding down Ukraine, blowing up its infrastructure. And also he's he's betting that the, the West and the US in particular will flake uh, at some point, just decide that the the bill right. is too high and and you know, wind down security assistance to Kiev. That, that's his calculation. I don't see that happening yet. The, the U.S. is sort of is, is pivotal. And there's also a kind of question mark about whether, for example, if the Ukrainians take more territory next year, whether they stop short of Crimea or they try and take back Crimea, which Russia has annexed and occupied for eight years. That's going to be very hard. And I, I think that may be the moment where, where some people, perhaps in Washington, London, Paris suggests the ukrainians it's time for them to sue for peace. The problem is they don't trust the Russians, and why frankly would anyone trust Vladimir Putin after what he's done?
2: yeah, I think you said that uh, we've reached the stage where for Ukraine it must be a military victory
3: yeah, because he, he, let, let's say the there were to be a peace deal that the assumption in Kiev is within six months, 12 months, Putin will just regroup, consolidate, shuffle his generals and try and attack again. I mean, it's clear that he wants to ex- extinguish Ukraine. He literally wants to kind of rub the country from the, rap, from the map and make it all Russia again. And then I think he wants to keep going. I mean, it, it, it seems crazy, but but that I think is his plan.
2: Let me go to caller Jennifer and El Cerrito. Hi, Jennifer. Oh, hi. Sorry. Um, I
7: first of all, I just want to really thank you for the show and um, to the journalists for doing this important work. I think having contemporaneous accounts is hugely important to keeping Americans in support of of supporting the Ukrainian war effort. Um, My question was about the Ukrainians who've been kidnapped from various Ukrainian territory. I think it's upwards of half a million, and it to me it just seemed like such a bizarre use of finite russian resources and i wondered first if you think the Zelensky, you know government knows of where they have been taken and it just occurred to me actually while listening to the show that they would be very um it would be the sort of thing that could be used as human shields for russian supply depots or transportation hubs if Zelensky knew where they were and if uh of course, Putin was amoral enough to use them. So, um,
2: Jennifer, thanks, Luke.
3: Uh, y- yes, I mean a lot of people have been have been uh, taken away. I mean, most tragically, uh, quite a few children have been taken away, and mm-hmm. and it, in places like Mariupol, city on the Sea of Azov, which I visited in January just before the invasion, uh, where upward of twenty thousand civilians have been killed by by Russian bombing. You know, parentless kids have been shipped over to Russia and given to Russian families. I mean, it's an extraordinary crime. Um, and I think I think the plan again is to sort of de-Ukrainize Ukraine, to, to to rid them of their, you know, rid these people of their Ukraineness and make them into good Russians. Now, what what I can say to to Jennifer is some of the people who've left by Russia have then um exited Russia into the Baltic states and gone back to Government-controlled areas to western Ukraine via Poland. So it's not that everyone has disappeared, but a lot of people have disappeared. Children have been separated from their from their uh, parents, and it, it, it's another astonishing crime to to add to a very very long list.
2: Well, just yesterday, the president of the European Commission proposed setting up a UN back court to investigate Russian war crimes in Ukraine. But then we're also hearing that it would be extremely difficult, procedurally very hard. What is the likelihood that that would be effective? And it would want to investigate not just these incredible atrocities by Russia, but there have also been a few videos that have surfaced that are accusing Ukraine of of doing things to Russian soldiers that are also potentially crimes as well. But just in terms of something like this additional court being effective, what do you think,
3: Luke? Well, I, I mean, I do I do think these sanctions ha, have worked, and and I take your point. I mean, there have been a few videos suggesting Ukrainian wrongdoing. I mean, the difference is, of course, that the Ukraine is open and will let investigators come in and uh, will will give access so we can get to the bottom of this. Whereas, of course, right. the Russians never do that. Um, but but there is there is a sort of weakness, uh, which is that actually the, the Russian regime and the people at the top of it they're very wealthy. They've started... awful lot of money i mean putin arguably is the richest guy in the world worth many many billions of dollars um and up until recently that that you know wealthy russians they enjoyed traveling going to new york spending money in paris buying property in london educating their their kids in in british uh private schools um and and so you know to to cut them off with the threat of uh, a court action uh, a trial it is it's quite quite a big punishment. Um, so I, I think the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean we should do it. And, it, you know, it may be a task for two years' time or it may be a task for the next generation, but it, it should definitely be happening.
2: We're talking with Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, about the war in Ukraine, getting the latest and also getting the context. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes... In the midst of the ongoing atrocities of Russia's choosing, my greatest rage is for the Americans on the right who intentionally enable Russia and Putin through U.S. right-wing media, in league with Russian media through criticisms of Ukraine and President Zelensky. I include Elon Musk among those who fail to draw clear moral lines and can't bring himself to call out Russia's actions
3: explicitly.
2: Do you want to just talk quickly about Ukraine's dependence on some aspects of Elon Musk's stuff?
3: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting subject. So I'll I'll tell you two things, and you can you can make your mind up. I mean, one is I was on the front line recently in these First World War style trenches with missiles and booms going on. It, it looked like something out of a, a kind of war, classic war film. And then I clambered out to see three guys playing with a screen and joysticks, and they were drone operators, Ukrainian drone operators. And next to them was an Elon Musk satellite dish under a tree. Uh, And they were using this to call in artillery strikes on Russian positions. Now, now, clearly, uh, the the fact that that uh, Ukraine is connected, that it can can use, use, um, use a system in military situations has been very, very helpful to the Ukrainian war effort. But the other piece of evidence, which I share with you without comment is that, since Elon Musk took over, the number of Russian trolls who've been abusing me on Twitter, I mean, I've got used to them as part of my life, has gone up exponentially. um, And it seems they can post crazy pro-Putin stuff without any form of moderation or pushback. And, you know, personally, that's not something I welcome.
2: Yeah, sorry to hear that that's happening. At the same time, when you talk about Starlink and the fact that Musk uh, weeks ago, I think even threatened to to cut that off in terms of Ukrainian access. It is kind of amazing when you think about what so much hinges on often and how the U.S. is connected to all of that with regard to progress in the war. Well, Taylor writes, is is the U.S. too risk-averse in its defense of Ukraine? It seems that the only way to stop Russian attacks on civilians and infrastructure is to attack the locations from which the attacks are being launched. Will that ever happen? We touched on this already, Luke, and, and that you feel strongly that we are at that point.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the sort of calculations of the Biden administration is that they don't want this tipping into a nuclear conflict. And they seem worried that maybe, maybe, maybe if it goes badly on the battlefield, Putin might use a tactical nuclear weapon now, now my take uh, for what it's worth is that he's not going to do that because ultimately Putin is is a coward. And also, his spy chiefs tell him when they meet with him every week that they they have foiled three terrible plots by the Americans to kill him by the CIA, etc. Now, this isn't true, but I think Putin believes it. He he lives in a in a in a cosmos of, of paranoia and conspiracy, and I think he thinks that were he to use a nuke, uh, that the, the you know the, the Americans would drop a, a a a bomb, a nuclear bomb on his head. So I think the risks are exaggerated, and and therefore I really think. The U.S. and its partners at this point should be all in.
2: Well, let me see if I can squeeze Malcolm in from Sacramento. Hi, Malcolm.
3: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I have three
8: quick points. The first one is I've, um, I'm a West Point grad, military officer. I've been to war, and it seems in America we're getting this as a good and evil. There's a good side. Ukrainian does nothing wrong, Russia does everything wrong. And I think it, I, I wanted the journalist to comment on the nuance of war. It's never that easy. Right. Um, the second comment is when it comes to the original reason Putin said he went to war about Ukraine not going to NATO, it seems like that's lost in the whole discussion now. It's about building an empire and all that. And I'm curious what his thoughts are, why the West didn't say they wouldn't join NATO and just put Putin in a corner.
2: All right, and now the I'll last p- one oh, is... sorry, go ahead, quickly.
8: I'm sorry, go ahead. No, quick last point is, has he... Are there are journalists out there that takes the um, Russian side and try to look at it through their lens and really look at Ukraine as something. That's all. Thank
3: you so much. Thank you, Malcolm. Luke? Well, I mean, uh, just briefly, I don't think it was ever really about NATO because Sweden and Finland have, have, have are joining now and the, the Russians don't seem to uh, bother about that. In terms of good versus evil, look, you know, I appreciate people have different opinions, but essentially what I've seen is... Um, a full scale and terrible invasion of one country by another. I mean, Russia is basically trying to devour Ukraine um, and in areas it occupies, it leaves a slew of uh, bodies and, and you know, broken villages. So, so, I mean, I think, I think this, this conflict is pretty morally clear cut. We haven't had a war like this f- since 1945. Um, and sorry, the the last point. Well, I mean, look, I spent, time, I spent four years living in, in Moscow. I speak fluent Russian. I have Russian friends, most in most in exile, and there are plenty of Russians as well who are just bitterly opposed to what, to my mind, has become essentially a sort of 21st century fascist regime.
2: Well, we just have 30 seconds, Luke. But how do you think Ukraine will fare in this next stage, this winter?
3: I think they'll survive. I think it's going to be difficult um, and bloody, but that they will keep going, and that their morale is high and their will to win is. Enormous. um, And I think they deserve our support and continued um, empathy. We should stick with this um, country, stick with this theme. It's very important.
2: Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, author of the new book, Invasion The Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Luke, thank you so much for your reporting.
3: Thanks, Mina. Thank you.
2: And my thanks to our listeners for sharing their reflections, their questions, their insights as well and experiences from Lana earlier in the call in the in the show. I also want to thank Susie Britton for producing today's segment you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.